And we're back. Welcome to the Mercy Cast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I'm your host, Raleigh Sadler. Have you ever noticed when people say, how are you doing? That your knee-jerk reaction is to say, I'm busy, as if our busyness and our productivity somehow indicates how much worth we have or how important we are to society. It's really a declaration. It's a status symbol. It's saying that you know what, I matter, and you should actually just feel good that you get to spend time with me because I am so busy and my time is so valuable. And, you know, to some extent, that may be true. But I've noticed that in my own life, it's so easy to just have it as this standard phrase, I'm busy, I'm so busy, because it does convey that level of importance. But then what happens when we become paralyzed? What happens when our own perfectionistic tendencies get in the way, when we don't know how to keep going? What I've noticed is when we're paralyzed, it impacts our feelings of worth, our feelings of identity, and we don't feel good about ourselves anymore because now we're not in step with the thing that we profess to everyone who asks us how we're doing. Ironically, Matt hit a wall when he was writing a book on productivity. Most of us think that productivity is all about setting our lives up for smooth sailing and getting things done quickly. But, you know, writing a book on it, it can be tricky. He sat down at the screen to write and the words did not come. For days, he would stare at a blank screen. Generally, writing came easy to him. But now as he was writing his opus on productivity, nothing was happening. So a friend said, How about you just write whatever comes to mind? And he did. And now he ended up writing 600 pages. But now he had another problem. Now he had to kill his darlings. Now he had to cut sections out. All the while this was happening, the organization where he was working had a large round of layoffs. So not only is he struggling with this book to get the right book out there, but he's also losing his regular income. He falls into a depression and really doesn't know what to do next. Today, I am joined by Matt Perman, the author of What's Best Next and a founder of an organization by the same name, both existing to help knowledge workers improve their productivity. Matt, how are you doing today? Doing great. Also busy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Busy, busy, totally busy. <laughs> but in the right way. And so... What do you mean by that? You're busy in the right way. Well, so I think it's really important to define productivity right. So it's not just getting more done faster. It's not just being busy. Busyness should not be equated with productivity. You might be getting the wrong things done. Yeah. (laughs) Busy at what is the real question. Right. We don't ask that question. We're just like, busy. Oh, well, I'm not busy. I watched six hours of Netflix today. Like, you know, it's... That's why I'm so busy. (laughs) Because I only have a window of like an hour to work. That's right. So I define... There's really two things at the heart of how I define productivity. It's getting the right things done. So effectiveness with resource usage considered, which I used to neglect that part of things. We can talk about that uh, later on in the podcast, maybe. But really, the heart of productivity is getting the right things done, not just anything done. And then second, when you talked at the beginning about, hey, I'm busy, so I'm important. Okay, so another key part of how I define productivity, you aren't doing this for your self-enhancement. You aren't doing this to feel more important. Yeah, You're doing this to help others thrive. And so you leave your ego out of it. Well, that's that's one thing to say, right? (laughs) 
But then I know it's so easy when you're putting everything you have into a project, whatever it is, for your ego to kind of get triggered in there, you know? To Yeah. And so it sounds to me like when you were writing this book, you're losing your job, all these things are happening. That part, that identity piece was really impacted. Like that sounded like you really went through it. And so what did you do next? So this is so interesting because it really resonated with me when you were talking about the ego side of things, but in a unique way, actually. So I feel like if we live our lives for Christ and do things for him, that, that helps put our ego in check, put it where it should be and genuinely do things for others and not find our worth and how productive we are. And that's something I, I work on. And that's actually part of, that's a good productivity practice, working on your heart and, you know, the internal dispositions that you have. Where where this really came and impacted me was uh, my story also overlaps with the growing trend out there of people talking about church hurt, people who've been, frankly, mistreated by their churches in ways that are just off the charts Whether it could be spiritual abuse, feeling neglected, not feeling spiritually nourished during that time. Exactly. And so the way this happened for me, among others, is some of the leaders at the church actually regarded me as having less value because I was not being as productive in the traditional sense. Instead of getting chapters written, getting the book finished. I was struggling. It was taking forever. I could not predict how long it was going to take. And they viewed me as if there was like something wrong with me, as if I was somehow defective, instead of realizing this is a natural part of the struggles of life. Everyone is going to have struggles in different ways. It doesn't mean you're less valuable as a, as a person. And really, I actually felt like, you know, Jesus really... I mean, Jesus really lays into the Pharisees. And one of the things he he lays into them about is he says, you are doing things to look good before others. And that is just out of place in my kingdom. Do things for the glory of God, not how you're going to look before others. And I felt like these leaders at my church, they had the wrong standard. They had the standard Jesus was condemning. They were saying, well, you're not looking good before others. They didn't use those words, of course this is the way they treated me, the way they talked in other words. You're not looking good before others because this is being so hard, taking so long. And I was like, are we reading the same Bible? Because what I, what I read in the Bible is we are to do good things for others through suffering, and there will be opposition and challenge. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. Well, and it's interesting. You link value and productivity, and you say when your value is determined by your productivity, that is just a recipe for failure. That's a recipe for pain. That's a recipe where you just will not feel like you fit in. And it's interesting because you kind of counteract that view with this biblical view that we see in scripture where people are suffering along with everybody else, but as they're suffering, they're loving their neighbor, they're caring for others. And their value is not in what they do. It's who God made them to be and what he has done for them. And it's interesting when we link value and productivity, that's less spiritual and more utilitarian. Oh yeah. You know, it's pragmatism is ruining the day. You know, it's like, if, if I do this, then I will matter. And I think 
you know, I lived in New York for seven years and my go-to response was, I'm busy. I'm getting things done. I'm making it happen. And I felt really good. And I was busy. I was working way too many hours a week and wasn't doing any self-care, wasn't taking a step back. And it impacted me. And it does that to many of us. But kind of stepping back and peeling back the layers and realizing that my value is not determined by what I do. Yeah. And I think one of the best things for me in that was the pandemic. Oh, yeah. When I couldn't do the things that I'd always done. Mm -hmm. And then I remember thinking, well, who am I now? Yeah. Who am I apart from what I do? Mm -hmm. And so as you're trying to help people be productive and get things done, how do you help them safeguard against their value being in what they do? Yeah, well, this is why, this is actually one of the reasons I wrote the book, because before being a productivity analyst or any of that, like, my real love is theology. And my favorite Christian truth or one of them, is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, by faith apart from doing good things, even in things in God's power. Some people misunderstand the doctrine of justification by faith. They think if the good things we're doing are in God's power, then it's okay for them to be the means of justification. No, no, false. No good things we do, whether in our own power or works by God in us, are the means of our acceptance with God. No good things. And ironically, this actually motivates obedience. It motivates greater obedience to God and greater productivity. And I wanted to flesh out that connection in the book while giving people great strategies and tactics for improving their productivity. So I have a whole chapter on justification by faith alone and how it drives productivity. And the key thing here is when you realize you are accepted by God, apart from your works, that is apart from your productivity, you can rest and you can find your value truly in Christ, not in what you do. And then ironically, the pressure's off, the pressure's off. And when the pressure's off, we have greater motivation, ironically. I mean, it, it's this paradoxical thing. A lot of times people are, they're like, well, if God accepts us apart from good works, why should we do good works at all? And I'm thinking your understanding of human motivation is completely wrong. The highest motivation is intrinsic motivation. You're not doing it simply for the reward, for something beyond the activity itself. You're doing it because you find the activity itself meaningful. And Christians who've been transformed by the Holy Spirit find doing good works for the glory of God intrinsically meaningful. We do them because we enjoy doing them. We want to do them. And that is the most powerful motivation. And so long as you think you have to do good to be accepted by God or to be considered valuable to yourself, that intrinsic motivation is, is killed. Now you have an ultimately, I wrote an extrinsic motivation. I have to do this so God will accept me or so that I will accept myself. It's interesting that you bring up justification by faith. In a previous episode, I sat down with Elise Fitzpatrick, and Elise said that the majority of her Christian experience, she had never heard anything about justification. Wow. And she said, well, wait a minute. I did hear someone say, justify never sinned. It's kind of like a way to remember what justification by faith is. But she said, that's incomplete. Mm -hmm. It's not 
justify never sinned. It's also justify had always obeyed. Exactly. There are these two things that are credited to our account because of what Christ did for us. And so in this world of finding our value and our productivity, everything that we do is about, I need to do more. I need to be better. If I can do this, then I matter. If I say the right thing, or if I don't mess up, or if I don't fail, we're so afraid to fail that we don't do anything. But the gospel, this idea of justification by faith that you're not saved because of your faith. My faith is just strong enough. Mm -hmm. No, you're saved by your faith because it's not even the strength of your faith. The faith that you have is a gift. Mm -hmm. You are saved by the object of your faith. And I love how you say that when we realize that it's not this if and then construct, if I do this, then this will happen. It's because, therefore, because Christ died for sinners, I'm a sinner, therefore, I am righteous in the sight of God. Mm-hmm. And once we understand that, that our justification comes from the life of someone in our place, then the pressure is off, then we are free. Tell me more about how to really understand that the pressure is off. Yeah, well, uh, so I think showing grace to ourselves and others is, is really crucial. And we're able to do that when we realize the pressure is off. And so I I do find it very important to be theologically anchored for our productivity. And now that's an uncommon insight because a lot of people, when they think of productivity, they are thinking only of action and pragmatism. And I'm saying that's not going to give you true productivity. It's And also it's just not as exciting either. We need to have theological anchors. So in order to really absorb this reality that God accepts us apart from what we do, we need to meditate on the great truths of the Christian faith and the great truths of the Bible. Chief among them, yes, justification by faith alone, beautiful, but also, you know, the nature of the atonement. I mean, that's amazing. John Murray's book, Redemption, Accomplished and Applied, is one of the best books I've ever read. And it's all about what Christ accomplished by his death. And he summarizes it in five or six things. It's beautiful. The doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the incarnation, the two natures of Christ united in one person. These things give us, they give us roots and and ballast and they take us out of ourselves and into the object of our faith, which is Christ. And so this is why, so Redeemer Presbyterian Church here in New York City, they have this fellowship program called the the Gotham Fellowship, where they train professionals in how to integrate faith and work. So it's like a productivity type of thing. They don't call it that, but like that falls within how I'm defining the scope of productivity. And there's a huge theological component here. They read some very deep theological works, and I say amen to that. That's what it takes to get our eyes off of ourselves and truly start realizing and internalizing the fact that we are accepted apart from what we do. Well, it's interesting because what you were saying is counterintuitive to everything that we know naturally about productivity. Mm-hmm. You know, that inclination to do more, do better. And you're saying, no, don't, don't necessarily do that. Look outside yourself. I yeah. find it interesting that you really believe that for us to be productive, we have to have these theological anchors. Yep. 
Now, you know, I went to seminary and I've been around a lot of folks that would talk theology all day long in a coffee shop, but not be productive at all. It wasn't overflowing into, from what I could gather, our lives where we were actually getting things done. It was more, we were turning it in inside on ourselves kind of. Yeah. And so how do we look to these theological anchors and still continue to do things in light of them? Right. Absolutely. And I've seen that over and over again. And a couple of thoughts on that. First, okay, to remember what Paul says, the aim of our instruction is love. So it's not mere contemplation. So being in a coffee shop all day, just talking about theology or whatever. Yeah. And sometimes you just want an espresso and I get it. (laughs) But yes, the aim of our instruction is love. Yes. Yeah. That's fascinating because yeah, it's about loving God. It's about loving our neighbor. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so this has to issue in good works. And I see productivity. When I'm talking about productivity, I'm talking about love because productivity is a set of tools for loving people better. This comes down to the outward focus of productivity. It's not ultimately for ourselves, for our own self-enhancement or whatever. It's for benefiting others. So productivity is a set of tools to help us love others. Okay, so if we see that as, you know, the the meaning and, and purpose of productivity, then what gets us out loving instead of just focusing on the these theological anchors? Well, first, remembering the purpose, as Paul says. But then second, for me at least, th- there were some really good examples in my life early on in college. It, college is when I got into theology and before that apologetics. And people like William Lane Craig, in my opinion, one of the greatest apologists ever in the history of the church, and Josh McDowell, who's a little more popular level, but he's more than a carpenter. It really, really is, really is a good book. And both Josh McDowell and Bill Craig and the other apologists I read, they really emphasized it's it's not enough to know the answers. You have to love people. You have to be kind and gentle, not get irritated with people, not get combative or defensive. So part of their teaching was the manner in which we should engage others. And that just had a big impact on me, a really big impact on me. And I think that's part of what helped me see as I got into theology, this this needs to terminate on love for God and love for others, which are the two great commandments. And so it has to result in action for others, not just satisfaction for myself. One, it's interesting that you bring up evidential apologetics because so much of that is, it's a tool for many to defend the faith in a sense or to show that Christianity is a coherent worldview or it's an idea worth exploring, Mm -hmm. but in it, people can become combative. And so I think it's interesting that you mentioned that both of these writers will say that, no, the chief aim here is to love And oftentimes when we're defending or anything, there's that defensive posture. There's that inclination to prove that you are right. And in doing that, proving the other person wrong. And I think there's an aspect also where we have to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is doing the work of transformation. So we can lay these things out in love. I remember sharing the gospel with someone once and I clearly, it was more from a presuppositional approach where I kind of deconstructed that person's worldview and showed how Christianity is a very coherent worldview. And the person was like, well, that's fine, but I still don't want to believe. (laughs) 
And, and it hit me, I was much younger then, but it hit me that what we bring into this matters. And if we're not coming from a place of love, and, and maybe I was, and I, I, I hope I was, but at the end of the day, I love how you're saying that even in productivity, love must be central. You even said productivity is love. It's a set of tools used to love others. Yep. And I have this idea of others-centered productivity. Because with apologetics, as well as productivity, we can make it about us. But what you're saying is, no, the reason you're productive is to get things done. We're recording here in Manhattan. And I always tell people when they come to the city, many people are like, well, well, New Yorkers are mean. They're intimidating. They're this, they're that. But then they have a couple of conversations with New Yorkers on the train or something like that, which New Yorkers won't do. But people from out of town will do that. They'll be like, what are you reading? And the person just looks at them and then they're like, okay, I'll acquiesce. And then they'll, they'll talk and then they'll be like, that person was really nice. Or I was trying to get my Metro card and that person helped me. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people, I'm like, yes, New Yorkers are nice, but you have to understand that we are nice because not only do we want to help you, but we also know that as we're loving and caring for other people, it helps the masses. Because if one person is stuck here, mm-hmm. the whole machine oh, is discombobulated. Yeah. Right. And I think in a, a very real way, that love and that care is real. But there's also the piece of, I want to help you be productive. And I think we have this idea of flourishing here. Yeah. That if in our productivity, we're able to step outside of ourselves and now we're free from paralysis, we're free from some of the fear that's been holding us back, our worth is bound up in another. And so we're free from trying to earn approval, trying to earn love, and now we're free to help others. And as that fire catches, I can see even like our businesses flourishing our churches flourishing, our community flourishing. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit of how human flourishing and productivity are tied together. Oh man, I mean, that is just so important. They are very deeply tied together. Okay, so in order to be productive, the first thing you need to do is know your goal, get your goal right. Okay, so we need to think of productivity not in relation simply to our goals for the next three months, six months, five years, but in relation to the goal of a human life. And so that's why I've, over the last several years, I've dug even deeper into philosophy. I was a philosophy major in college. It's kind of like majoring in pre-unemployment, but uh, it worked out. (laughs) And actually, so philosophy is incredibly valuable. Not only does it teach you critical thinking, but it brings you into this conversation that's been going on for 3,000 years, not just in the West, but also in the East. And one of the big questions in that conversation is, what is the purpose of a human life. And everyone agrees there is a purpose except for the cynics, which is a Greek school of thought early on. And then, well, I guess other people today, and there's atheistic existentialism, which says existence precedes essence. And so you're just defining your purpose. There's no objective purpose. But for the most part, throughout the history of the conversation, there has been broad agreement. There is a purpose to the human life. And this is the field of ethics, actually. So philosophy has three branches, ethics, metaphysics and epistemology and ethics a lot of times we think of it as regiment and restraint restrictions on on people that actually cause problems and i think that's bad ethics i think that's unethical the real question of ethics is how do you live a flourishing human life and so we need to understand that what does flourishing mean 
for a human being? How should we be living our lives at this broad level? And then that needs to shape how we think about productivity. You mentioned this idea of purpose and how the philosophers of old would always try to figure out what is man's purpose. They're trying to understand the human condition, but they're also trying to figure out, in a sense, what are we supposed to bring to the table? What are we supposed to do? You know, trying to really balance these big questions of life. And I have found that when people are languishing in purposelessness, Mm -hmm. they're not productive, they're not happy, and they're struggling in many ways. But when they find their purpose and they're living in accordance to their purpose, whatever that may be, there's more direction, there's more focus, there's more excitement, there's more joy. And I've seen that in my own life. The times where I kind of get a little confused on my purpose or what I want to do, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm struggling. But when I'm tapped in and I'm doing the things that I want to do and and my productivity is in line with that, Mm -hmm. there's just more joy. I'm not saying that I feel like I have it all together all the time. No. And I'm not saying that there aren't these perfectionistic tendencies that will creep in and try to rob me of joy. But I'm saying that I am happier when I'm engaging my purpose. And so some of our listeners may be in a season like I have been where they're trying to find their purpose. What would your advice be for someone who is trying to find their purpose? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Good question. The first thing I'd say is it is right and important to find your purpose and to seek your purpose. It it is a real thing. It really is important to come to know your purpose and act in accordance with this. And I looked into this because I was like, is this just an idea that I like? Or is there broad agreement on this? And I mentioned there is broad agreement in the field of philosophy, but also psychology. Psychologists agree it is important to have purpose. And in fact, there used to be a lot of terms for this, like joining up your circles, getting your life together. Like purpose is is a concept in the field of psychology, not just in productivity and philosophy. This is, this is a real thing. And okay, so how do you find your purpose? So I think it's helpful to think objectively and subjectively. Objectively, why do human beings exist? Why does any human exist? We, have a, we all share an objective purpose, and I think it is to know God. God is our ultimate purpose, and that means knowing him That's not just information, that's a relationship. So fellowship with God or communion with God is our ultimate purpose. But that's not, that doesn't just mean contemplation, thinking about him or talking theology. It includes action as well. We come to know God better through doing things, actually, because God himself is a creator and, and provider and through relationships with others. And then think of purpose. So, and a lot more can be said on that, but there's purpose at the highest level of a human life. But then there's like, okay, what's my specific purpose in life? Specifically, what am I here to do? And I find it helpful to divide that into five areas. Most of the time we think of our profession. What's my purpose? What line of work should I be in? And what should I accomplish there? And that's important to find that, but also think in terms of family. What's my purpose there? Is it to get married and have a family? If so, what what should that family look like? How should I, what type of parent should I be? What type of spouse should I be? Church, there's a purpose for church involvement. What's that look like? Society, 
just being involved with your community, with the state, with the world, and then individually, just yourself as a single unit. And Aquinas talked about this, like, so that's a real category, thinking of yourself just personally. And what type of person do you want to be? Character, what types of hobbies do you want to have? Things like that. So purpose ends up being a multifaceted thing. We actually, we have a set of purposes underneath the one uber purpose. So you would say that there's a kind of meta purpose. Yeah. Yes. You yeah. know, to, to know God. Yeah. And then within that, we may have individual purposes that are characterized by where we are in life. It could be, yep. do we want to be married? Are we married? Do we have a family? Yep. Are we career focused? Mm -hmm. um, do we want to work in a trade? Mm -hmm. Occupations kind of revolve around a sense of purpose, but that's not, purpose is not just grounded in our occupations. Yep, that's right. Because if, if we only think of purpose as grounded in occupation, we will be living incomplete lives. Life is more than your occupation, than your line of work. And if we don't realize that will be very unbalanced. You know, I have found that people are often happier, healthier, and more joyful when they are doing things that they love. Yep. You know, it could be you're working in a job that you enjoy. It could be you have a great set of hobbies. You know, you. I currently live in Florida now and, you know, people on the weekends, they'll go boating, they'll go to the beach, they'll, there are people where I live, you know, they're, they're doing all sorts of things, woodworking, going for walks, and they're not doing it necessarily because there is a functional need. I mean, yeah. I talked to someone recently at a wedding and a person's like, apparently I'm a really good woodworker, but you know what, I've, I've broken the system. This is what I do now. I just give stuff away. Now people want to buy it. And people get really excited when I make something, a table, a chair, what have you. But it's kind of cool to just be able to say, no, I'm going to give this to this person. Because for him, he sees the value of his work. He enjoys his work, but he also doesn't feel like he has to do that as an occupation. I've had friends who one person loved baking. She was amazing. Then she started her own cupcake company. And then hated it because now it became work. And she said, never try to do a job with a hobby that you love. For me, when I started to let my people go, I had had this passion to really help local churches address issues like human trafficking by loving their most vulnerable neighbor, while also recognizing that they were vulnerable themselves. And I remember doing that and then having someone say, hey, like, I can help you as a missionary. I can, you know, give to your cause, but I would be willing to give more if you considered starting a nonprofit because regardless, you're going to do this. And in my case, as long as I was talking to people and encouraging them with this message, Christ became vulnerable to the point of death to set vulnerable people like you and me free from death so that we could love other vulnerable people until death. When I'm acting in accordance with that idea, then I feel like I'm living in accordance with my purpose. Amen. But when I'm not, yeah, that's when I languish. Mm -hmm. That's when the paralysis mm -hmm. starts seeping in. That's when the questions of my own worth start seeping in. And I do think it's important to look outside of ourselves. Like we discussed 
yeah. about justification. I think that's very yeah. important. And having a church where during the Sunday service, whether it's through your liturgy or through the preaching of the word, you have someone who declares that you are made right with God because of what Jesus has done in your place, not because of what you do. Yeah. And that hearing that from outside kind of reminds us that we're free to rest. We're free to work. We are yeah. free. Yeah. It's not just on us to remind ourselves. We need to hear that from outside, from objectively, from the sermons in communion. In, well, and yeah. I like the idea of reminding ourselves, but I also know that there are times where sometimes maybe I remind myself of the wrong things. Yeah. Sometimes I, I speak to myself and my self-talk can be negative. Yep. And so having someone else say, no, that's not the truest thing about you. So true. The truest thing about you is whether you're productive or not, you have value. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In addition to that inherent value that is inborn, mm -hmm. Christ died for you. So you have that as well. Yeah. Right. And so now you have this one, two punch. You have this yeah. double whammy. You are fearfully and wonderfully made on one hand. And the blood of Christ was shed for you on the other. Yep. And Amen. both hands have nail scars. And now you are freed because of the scars of another to love others in spite of your own scars. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And being a part of a church where we are reminded of that. And it's it's really too bad. A lot of people today have experienced church hurt, and, and that's is really, really too bad and should not be minimized. But I'd encourage people to find a church. If they've been hurt, find a different church where you can go and be reminded, be part of a community that's bigger than you, because we can't do this alone. We do need these external reminders. And also Christ is present at church. If you want to see Jesus, yes, the Bible, pray, the Holy Spirit is is in you. If you are a follower of Christ, go to church. Jesus is there. I mean, you don't see him physically, but in, you know, even in like in the Lord's Supper, there's a real presence of Christ there with him. And so that that is really, really important. Another thing that strikes me as you were talking, I think you described a, a unique purpose of yours, which I think is fantastic. And like an Uber purpose, even over those five sub purposes I gave for five spheres of life. And it's a little bit beneath the meta purpose of, you know, know God. What you described is your particular angle on knowing God, which is yeah. vulnerability, knowing him through vulnerability. And of course, all of us need to be doing that. That is the path, part of the path of the of the Christian life, but you're giving special focus to that. And so in, in one sense, we could say that's your purpose. We just, what we want to remember, what I'd say to the person who's looking for the purpose is like purpose is multi-layered. It's like an onion. There's multiple things involved. You don't have to think of just one concept, but they do all need to relate. And the big thing you want to do, like with these five spheres, these five smaller purposes is you want to make those work well together. So Human flourishing is when all of these areas are working well together. They are integrated. You have a harmony. You have an orchestra. Flourishing, I would describe as harmony. Flourishing as harmony. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. 
And you had mentioned people who had experienced church hurt, yeah, spiritual abuse. These things are very serious. And I think in many cases, people do not know where to go because the people that said that they were safe mm-hmm. were not safe yeah. in that person's case. Yeah. And so many of us who experience that, you know, I've been there as well. It's very easy to isolate. Yep. And to kind of go lick our wounds and and now we're not very trusting and we're struggling and and sometimes we internalize and we beat ourselves up. We're like, well maybe 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 there's something wrong with me and da 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 is because they don't seem to be like yeah. they're not going through it. But you know, I think we were created to belong. Yes. Right. You know, to belong to ourselves, to belong to God, to belong to others in a healthy way, not in yeah. a harsh way, not in an exploitative way, not in a even spiritually abusive way. Yep. And I think we often can isolate ourselves when we're hurt. But I've found in my own journey that when I isolate, I typically don't get what I need. And so if you are hurting, if you are in a place where you are struggling because you've been hurt in a Christian context, I would just encourage you to find a safe person. It just has to be one. Find a safe person to talk to about these things. And don't be afraid as you're talking to this person. If you do believe this is a safe person, whether it's a counselor, whether it's another pastor, whether it's just a trusted friend, where you just let it out, you share the things that you're really processing. Yep. And you don't hold it back because I believe in... It's not until we accept what reality is that we can do anything about it. We can accept the reality that we're hurt. We can accept the reality that we're languishing without purpose. We can accept the reality that we may not trust people that we thought we were supposed to trust. Mm -hmm. But what I found is after you start talking to that one person, that's a roadmap to finding more people that we can trust and finding a healthy church. And there's nothing better in the world than finding a place where you go and you're like, not only can I attend, but I can be part of this because I I love what's happening. And so I think all of these things come back to identity. Mm. Mm. You know, it's, it's the pain that we carry mingled with the purpose that we want to live in. And so, so many of our listeners are there. They listen to this podcast because it's scratching that itch of learning how to show love to others through the tough things that we experience. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to people who they're just trying to get through the day? They're trying to process pain while also live in accordance with their purpose. Yeah. If, I mean, I've been there. If you're at the point where you're just trying to get through the day, I mean... Take the pressure off yourself. Don't feel like you have to accomplish a certain set of results every day. I mean, I know there are there are demands on us. We don't have a choice over. You got to make rent or your mortgage and so forth. But as much as possible, take the pressure off and let, your, let yourself heal a bit. Let yourself rest. And in the later version of the book, a couple of years after the book had been out, my publisher was like, we want to really, re- oh, we're releasing it in paperback and we want to release an expanded edition. And I was like, you're kidding. The book's already too long. You want to release an expanded edition? I don't think that's going to be 
much of a value proposition there, but I include an additional chapter in that expanded edition and it's on suffering, productivity through suffering. And I talk about that. Well, we're both looking at his book, What's Best Next? And this thing is about 25 pounds, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's it, it would keep a door open. Um, <laughs> my book, not so much, but this book, this would keep a door open. And yeah, it's, I love what you say about taking the pressure off because you and I have both been through life events where there were times where we just had to be yep. and mm -hmm. we could focus on what was in front of us, but we didn't really have much more bandwidth than that because, you know, we were going through things where we needed to heal and grow and what have you. Mm -hmm. My final question for us, as you kind of give us that encouragement to take the pressure off, how do you do that? Yeah. So there's two parts. There's just the psychological component of giving yourself permission not to get a whole wow. lot done. Yeah. But then the deeper wow. question is, how do you do that? So what I did when I was going through that deep depression and I had a really hard time working and I did force myself to keep working about 10 hours a day. I had to start about noon. I couldn't, couldn't start early. But the big thing I did to take the pressure off, in addition to giving myself permission to like just not meet certain standards, was actually prayer and scripture. And I know that just sounds so simple and so basic, but so powerful because God does meet us there. So what I did first thing when I got up in the morning is I read the Bible for two hours and it was just healing. It was just therapeutic. And I find it works better for me when I do have like a bit of a plan reading through the Bible. So it was, you know, I was reading through the whole Bible, not necessarily in order. I just created a sequence of the books because I didn't want to go long book, long book, long books. And I just read as long as I felt I needed to. And it was usually a couple hours. And that just, that ministered to my soul. It gave me strength, comfort, and prayer, of, of course. And those two things really anchored me. And then not having a standard of, I have to get this much done. And I just had, oh, and then faith. Okay. Faith in the sense of, <laughs> What I'm not able to do, but I feel like I really need to be doing, I'm just, I'm just going to have to trust God to take care of that. Yeah. And so trusting God will take care of these things that we are not able to do and just hanging on. And that's how we, how we won the American revolution, by the way, for the first few years, it was not going well. And the strategy was just survive. That was Washington's strategy, endure. And that was my strategy in in this phase of depression and in writing the book, it was survive. Yeah. Persist, just persist and trust God to bring through some breakthroughs. <laughs> you know, and it's interesting as we think about this survival piece, there's an element to the story of then general Washington that a lot of people don't think about because a lot of people don't know it. My great, 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 great uncle was a guy named Patrick Ferguson. He created the Ferguson Flintlock Rifle. He was the leader of General Cornwallis's sniper team. And so he's there, he's in the woods, and he sees a leader with two Hessian soldiers. And he's like, I don't know if that's Washington or not, but they're exposed. They, they look sickly. He's thinking they're going to die because of exposure. And so as a gentleman, he did not shoot this person who two weeks later he would find out was General Washington. So wow. my great, 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 great uncle died two weeks later at the Battle of Kings Mountain. 
And it reminds me that even when some things may be out of our control, that doesn't mean that everything is going to spiral out of control for us. Yeah, that's right. So when, right. when you can, all you can do is just survive and you're not to that point of thriving, just focus on that. That's right. Maybe that's what you're going to be productive in right now. Maybe so. It's just taking the next step and doing something. That is productive. To go through suffering well yeah. is productive, as we're defining it in the right sense, in the sense of accomplishing what we ought to accomplish as humans in the human life. And that's not just task accomplishment. It is how we live our life, living in faith, enduring, exhibiting all the virtues. And so today, if you're listening to this and you're like, well, that was really good, but I don't know what to do. Our encouragement would be just do the next thing. Do something. Take action. Doesn't have to be big. Mm -hmm. But as you do that, there will be a ripple effect. There will be another thing. Just focus on that one thing if that's where you are. That's right. That goes to the title of the book, What's Best Next? So ask yourself, what is the best thing I can do next? Just one thing. If you can only identify one thing, do that. And that's a wonderful note to end on. Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. If you are interested in more conversations like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. If you want bonus episodes, as well as a plethora of other resources, become a paid member at lmpg.org for $10 a month. You will get access to our bonus podcast, More Mercy, where we dive deeper. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. We want to hear from you, so you can email us at info at mercycast.com. Till next time, have mercy on yourselves and each other.